my name is John Lovering, and I am the host of Audio Theatre, heard from 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. On the last Tuesday of each month, from 6.30 to 8 p.m., I produce a live storytelling broadcast called True Tales Radio. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci, and our MC is Pat Spaulding. Each month we have a different theme and invite members of our Seacoast community to come on in and tell a personal experience true story centered around that theme to our in-studio and on-air audiences. You are about to hear a rebroadcast of True Tales Radio that has been edited to one hour. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio. Thank you and enjoy this hour of local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am, and uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And it's a rare thing these days, listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My dad said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he said. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. I love you. Thank you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. Welcome to True Tales Radio, coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio on 909 Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to introduce our show to you tonight. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to come in and share their true stories with our on-air listeners and our in-studio audience. And also um, to come and be a part of this local independent radio station that we are so lucky to have here in Seacoast, New Hampshire. Next up, we have Sharon Rhodes from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She just got a new job working at the Senior Center in Portsmouth. And I think that Sharon is a brave and adventurous woman. Because back in January, she was one of our first storytellers to volunteer for the premiere program of True Tales Radio. She told a very moving story that night and returned to tell us another. Tonight, Sharon will describe going back to college as an older woman in her story, A Crow goes to college. The last time I was here, actually, I started and I started crying because my husband had passed away, and now I'm a little bit braver, a little bit stronger, and um, when I met him, a couple years after I had met him, um, 20 years ago, he said to me, 
when my oldest daughter went to college, uh, I went to one of her classes. It was a computer class at Northeastern University. And there were a couple times in that class where the professor was talking and he asked a couple questions and nobody was, you know, going for it. And I was kind of like, I think I think I can answer that. But I didn't want to embarrass my daughter, so I didn't. But I was telling my husband about it and he said, I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie The Help. He kind of gave me the the help speech. He said, you're smart. And uh, I had never gotten that speech as a child. So um, I said, well, I'll try it. I'll try it. What, what, what's the worst thing that could happen? Um, so I enrolled at UNH, and I went right with the kids. And I was 18, 20 years older than them. They were great, for the most part, excellent, except for the, my first class. They mistook me for the professor when they came in that night. They were like, well, what do we do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see when the teacher gets here. And so I thought you were. But um, before I started, I just want to read a quote, because it just this was giving me courage. And it's a quote from Laura Munson. It says, stories give us permission to dive bravely into our lives, to let the pluck and perseverance of others guide our own adventures. So I'll tell you, um, I was working full time when I went back to school, and I have never done anything so hard or so quite so rewarding other than taking care of my husband while he passed away, but um, in a different way, rewarding. But um, I'd, I'll tell you a couple of the classes. Uh, for the most part, my life experience really, really, really brought a lot to the table at school. I did real well because of my life experience. And there were, was two classes that, one, I didn't think I'd have any problem with. Always be careful of that if you're a little, you know, overconfident. And the other one was computer science, CS401, they called it at UNH. And at UNH, you have to take three sciences to graduate. So there's only a few that you can take. One is forestry. And they're nothing like you imagine. It's not like going out looking at leaves or in forestry. It was, that I didn't. It was a lot of math measuring tree lots and it just it's very 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 good school and very difficult so I decided to take intro to computers because I thought I need to learn about computers that class turned out to be the class from you don't even want to know you don't want to know and I have backup because my oldest daughter was at Northeastern as I said taking um, computer science she was a computer science major and she I had to help her that was the only time I ever needed a tutor and I had already spawned my own tutor. Who knew? So she said, this class of yours, 401, which is an intro class, she said, this is three different classes at Northeastern University. It's intro to computers. It's computers and society. It's programming, coding. I just wanted to know how to, you know, use a computer. So she had, she came and helped me, and when she would, and it wasn't just a generational thing, because she, when she came up to the uh, labs with me to help me with my homework, People would start to pick up on it that were in my class, that were in computer science, and they would flock over and just want, can you just show me this? Can you? I go, no, 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 that's mine. Get you know, that's mine. That's all mine. And she was just amazing. She was just amazing. That's how I got through that class. That and I couldn't bring her to my final exam. And we had this young, handsome teacher. And his name was Chad Ames. Chad, if you're out there, I, you know, just hang in. Just re I know you remember this, right? Um, he was just, and he was very, such a nice man. But I, thought, I can't bring my daughter into the final exam. What am I going to do? Because I just, I just knew I was going to freeze up. So I tried to think of what I could do. Or what do you, what do you do? And I thought, well, I'm not 20. I'm 38. So what can I do? And I went, Chad, do you like pie? He said, I love pie. And I said, oh, what kind of pie? He said, pumpkin pie. It's okay. Well, my husband loves, loved pie, too. And I used to make him what was called summer pies. And every I'd get up at really early on a hot day, like Friday, not, not every day. But if it's really, really hot, I'd get up real early because, you know, you've got to turn on the oven. And I would make these summer pies. So I made Chad the best because I was famous for my pies, I might add. <laughs> the best pumpkin pie on earth. Put a little vodka with the ice water. It makes the crust flaky. That's the only secret I'm going to tell. I baked this, and I rode up on the bus, and I had it in a glass pipe here and everything. It's all for Chad. And I walked into Chad's office, and he happened to have a student in there. And I was like, oh, excuse me, Chad. I'm just dropping off the pie. And his face turned beet red, beet red. And he comes in. So later on, we had the exam that day. He comes in the room, and he walks in. And I'm sitting right up front, of course. I was always up front. And everybody's, you know, for the exam, they're all worried. And he walks by, and he walks by, and he goes, 
Thumbs up. Got them on the radio. So, B plus. B plus. I was fine with that. I actually graduated magna cum laude, so Ralph was right. Yeah, and I earned it. I earned it. And then the other class that I told you don't be too overconfident uh, was theater, intro to theater. And my daughter, who helped me with this computer class, she goes, oh, no, another intro class. You probably have to put on a show. That's exactly what we did. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I was totally into it. And I was I can handle this. I, you know, I like theater. I always wanted to do theater when I was younger, so... I never got a chance, so this is my big chance, so yeah, I'll do a solo, sure, you know, and then just before, I was so nervous, I was like, why did I do this? But I did a song from Send in the Clowns, and it was a tribute to my husband, who was in the audience with my two daughters, and my sister and some friends, and some of the, like, the other kids in the, my other classes, they came and they brought friends, because, you know, we all, the intergenerational thing was just great. We all just got along so well. They were, they were great. Let's go see Sharon's show. <laughs> so here we are in the theater. And we had practice, and of course, had dress rehearsal, and there was a stool. And I heard Amy say earlier, is this a good stool? Well, I'm glad, because I get to make friends with a stool again. Because when the, I had to sit on a stool for my song, and when the young man brought the stool out, he brought the wrong one. There was a broken stool in the back. And the <laughs> stool could barely stand on its own. Well, I didn't know. And I come in, and I have on a dress and a tie and a hat, because I'm kind of doing the man-woman thing of sending the clowns, and it's for my husband. And I have to sit on the stool, and I have to like do this like kind of like intricate little twirl with the hat. And I walk out, and so when I, I'll just do a little few words from that song, and you just think of me on this stool. I can't even sit on it, because the minute I go to perch on it, I walk out on the stage, and then I hear from my youngest daughter at the top of the lungs, Mom! So I'm like, she's paying me back for all those times when I was in the audience for her. Mom! <laughs> and everybody starts laughing. And I come out, and I, and I sit down, all sophisticated, and I go. And I can tell in one second, this stool is going to collapse. So I'm like, and for one second, you can see it on the video, and my face just goes, Wah, and then comes back. And I'm, so I'm holding myself up. Then I hear one of my friends who I think had a couple glasses of wine before the show. So I start singing and I, I can hear her singing this song. <laughs> oh my God. So I'm balancing and I'm thinking of the, and the, these words. I mean, I was thinking in my head, what is going on? It's like, isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Me here at last on the ground. You in midair. And I'm like, oh. So finally, I get to get up in that stool. I mean, it was, I could, it was just going to collapse, going to collapse. So I stood up the rest of it. I improvised, did what I had to do. So I think if anyone, after I did my first story, I think John had called me and said someone called in and wanted to hear about my school experience. I'm hoping that they were thinking about going back themselves as an oral adult. Please do it. But get your upper body strength with your rolling pin going and get your Jane Fonda out for your thigh muscles. That's what you're going to need. So thank you. Yeah. Everything goes better with pie, Sharon. Next up, we've got Liz Worth. Liz is the wife of Craig Worth who's sitting here, and he'll be telling us a story later this evening. Both live in Newmarket, New Hampshire. Liz works at UNH's Educational Talent Search Program to assist middle and high school students with access to college. The daughter of an Episcopal priest and a social worker teacher, Liz comes from a very musical family that somehow managed to craft over 2,000 musical instruments, mostly replicas from the medieval and Renaissance periods, while moving around a lot. By the time Liz was 18 years old, her family had moved 19 times. Good grief. She'll tell us about her nomadic childhood in this story, Mem Memories of the Perpetual New Kid. Throughout my childhood, the back-to-school signs that heralded the end of summer meant more than the beginning of another school year. For me, it usually meant starting at a new school. In my first 11 school years, 
I was the new kid 11 times. Our family's living quarters varied drastically. At two and a half, I moved into our most lavish abode, a gracious three-story, 22-room brownstone mansion with its very own chapel right in the heart of Washington, D.C. The roughest was a remote tar-papered chicken shed with screened windows that we stapled plastic sheeting over when it rained. In grade school, I knew the drill as the perpetual new kid, but that didn't help ease the loneliness. To cope with anxiety, I was out sick a lot, which didn't help with my adjustment. One awkward part was being introduced to my classmates. Elizabeth, why don't you take a seat in this empty front row, where no one else wanted to sit, and we'll get started with our lesson. I felt all the other students' eyes like lasers on my back as I tried to concentrate on what was happening at the chalkboard. Being what many call a PK or preacher's kid usually meant either being a goody two-shoes or veering off in the opposite direction, with an entire congregation of witnesses to every action I made stationed throughout every corner of town. It never occurred to me that the second option even existed. I was a true daddy's girl, and the worst punishment imaginable was the mere hint of disappointing him. Part of my strategy for self-preservation was to be the teacher's pet and get the highest grades possible, but sometimes keeping pace with the class was a real challenge. Each school system had its own schedule. Sorry, a few technical difficulties here. Each school system had its own schedule for unveiling critical uh, concepts. For me, this was painfully evident when it came to learning to tell time. It wouldn't have been an issue if digital watches were prevalent, but reading time on an analog clock eluded me for a long while. Either they hadn't covered that yet, or the class had already mastered the concepts. My pride prevented me from asking for help, even from my parents, admitting that I didn't get it. So the more I prolonged my agony, the worse it got. Being asked the time froze my brain, rendering me speechless. My thought process was overcome by panic and shame. I desperately hoped that no one would ask me what time it was, and if they did, I often pretended they hadn't. (laughs) Our moves usually happened during the summer. They always started with the dreaded family meeting, in which mom and dad announced the surprising news and portrayed it as a wonderful adventure that was being offered to us. My parents would pitch it like we had a choice in these upcoming changes, when in fact, they were just painting the difficult circumstances in the best light possible. Prior to the family meetings, there were telltale signs of an imminent move. Cable TV would get disconnected with comments like, Why pay so much just to watch reruns? We'd start downsizing, even before the inevitable amassing of moving boxes. Aren't you getting a bit old for those toys? Why don't we donate them to some younger children? In addition to being a minister and teacher, my parents built musical instruments. In 1966, they formed a short-lived business partnership with a retired Army soldier, Mr. Bailey, setting up a woodworking shop in the bottom level of his huge chicken barn outside of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. My parents, two brothers, Larry and John, and I lived in a trailer parked next to the Bailey's farmhouse. Times were tough for both families, and we had pooled our resources, often eating together, shopping together, sort of a two-family commune. But this forced blending, like many communal living arrangements, eventually crumbled. One day, my parents casually told my brothers and me, we're having a family meeting to let you know there will be some changes in our living situation. Here it comes. The Baileys are selling their trailer. We'll pack up and store our things for a while in the barn and move into the bus for the summer. Previously, we had converted a 66-passenger school bus into a camper of sorts. We spread an odd grayish-purple paint over the exterior, covering over all the school bus yellow. Most of the seats were removed, 
The floor was recovered with dark speckled tiles, and our beds were lined up on either side of the aisles. We painted the lower half of the inside walls a warm chocolate brown up to the windows with a buttercream color for the ceiling and side walls. We installed a kitchen fashioned from a dresser and vanity with a water pump sink. The dining area was a fold-down table that converted into my five-year-old brother John's little bed at night. For privacy, Mom hung plaid curtains across all the windows. The coolest feature was the smooth silver handle by the driver's seat that cranked the collapsible front door open and shut. Not long after we moved back into the bus, two men drove up the dirt road and stopped next to our family station wagon. One slipped into it, and the two vehicles drove away. I ran to my mom and shouted, A man just stole our car! She sighed and said, We had to choose between the car and the bus. Since we can live in and drive the bus, it'll be our wheels for now, too. (laughs) To improve our desperate finances, Mom took a job as a residential cook at a summer Girl Scout camp. That left Dad with the three of us kids for the remainder of the summer. We'd start our days stowing away whatever might jostle around and drove off in the bus to visit one of the many Civil War museums or battlefields. There was free admission for Gettysburg residents. The afternoon was spent at the town pool, which also let us in for free. Eventually, our whole family was so lonely for each other that Mom resigned the cook's position. After we rescued her from the camp, we rumbled our way to Connecticut. We'd learned that in spite of the roller coaster changes that we encountered, our top priority was to keep our family together. So growing up, I always got excited when the back-to-school signs appeared. It was another chance to start over and aim for new, hopefully better, circumstances. The structure school provided lent some consistency to my ever-changing existence. It usually meant we'd settle in for 10 months or so before heading off for our family's next adventure. Craig Worth, he is an internationally touring composer and singer-songwriter who, whenever he's home, lives with his wife, Liz, who we just heard a story from. Both are the proud parents of Ben Worth, another singer-songwriter and an all-round good person. His parents just wanted me to tell you that. (laughs) In 1984, Craig started taking lessons from a most influential teacher. He is still enrolled in that class. You might think that 30 years of instruction would lead to mastery, he says, but I've still got a long way to go. Let's hear more in Craig's story, Looking Up My Tiny Teacher. Thank you, thank you. Looking, actually, and I I actually throw in the word too in the middle of that, so I like the way you, that's a whole other meaning, but looking up to my tiny teacher, and they're both... Interesting stories, I imagine. <laughs> Here, here's, here's, here's my version. <laughs> Looking, that, yeah, no worries, no worries. Looking up to my tiny teacher. Threw me off a little there. <laughs> One measurement of my schooling would be the collective weight of teacher influence. The good, bad, and ugly teachers chained together over my lifetime. The good ones, well, let's save those for last. We're going to need that. The bad ones nearly always meant well. Let's say a few were over their heads and scrambling for survival themselves. Even as a child, I could sometimes sense their limitations and adjust my expectations. The ugly ones I will say a little more about. Thankfully, there were just two or three of those. They had a meanness to them. They were no doubt deeply wounded, and their approach to coping included inflicting damage upon tiny hearts and minds. Mr. Black was one. It sounds like a made-up name, doesn't it? Mr. Black, in Long Island, New York, taught eighth-grade chemistry. One of his lesson plans included delivering electric shocks to each student with a Tesla coil. The Tesla coil looked like an overly thick cordless screwdriver. It shot a painful blue stream to your hand, um, just for educational purposes. 
One terrified boy ahead of me in line wet his pants while we waited for our first round with the Tesla coil. And there were more than one. I suppose one could say Mr. Black was teaching about the dangers of electricity, perhaps, but I saw his eyes, and I knew his lessons came from a place of ugliness. Even in, his, in the 60s, how his practice survived in the relative open is a twisted mystery, but this was something he was known for. I mention him here because he is most deserving of the exposure. <laughs> Some other ugly ones told students venomously that they were not and never would be good at fill in the blank. I had just a little of that, but I was somehow inoculated against its lasting effects. I have met hundreds of people who were not immune and were closed down by those teachers. But enough with the ugly. Let's get to the good ones, and I've had mostly good ones, including Mrs. Judith Rothberg, fifth grade, who was sometimes frighteningly tough, but clearly respectful, fair, and highly skilled. Mr. Pete Palin, high school English, who's still a friend of mine today, who had great expectations for us all and lifted us as high as he could every day. Mr. Tucker, high school chorus, who kindled my passion for music and performance. Virginia Jidge Grewonk, an assistant dean of students at the University of New Hampshire, a teacher mentor, our college mother, and brilliant life coach, to name just a few of the impressive majority. As any teacher worth her apple knows, the very best teachers are open to learning from their students. One of my very favorite teachers of all time started giving me lessons in November of 1984, and he's still guiding a big slice of my education today. He's also a student of mine, and half his DNA came from yours truly. Benjamin Allen Worth, through the often unsettling experiment and the profound educational adventure that is parenthood, has been one of my greatest teachers. I'll try to give a few examples of lessons from his comprehensive program of brilliant instruction. <laughs> Example A, be fully present, express yourself kindly but unabashedly. Some of my guidance in his direction was tainted with my neurotic anxiety. Don't do this or you might offend people. Don't do that because it draws too much attention. People won't like you if you, etc. At the age of five one day, in response to a parental lesson comprised of such cautions, he turned to me and said, Poppy, sometimes you think too hard. <laughs> and so he was the very first to teach me about one of my most prevalent and self-destructive tendencies. Example B, spotlight the accomplishments of others, which may well lift the spirits of all within earshot. One day I got little Ben from daycare and took him to New Hampshire Public Television to pick up his mom, Liz, from her long day of work there. Upon arrival, I visited the restroom with him as we both had some urgency after our own hectic days. We finished business and entered Liz's workspace, totally filled with a bustling team of staff members working on a pledge drive. To my shock, Ben immediately silenced the entire workplace with a loud and clear proclamation. With great pride and delight, he shouted, my dad did a huge poop. <laughs> The faces of grim concentration transform with delight at this good news. <laughs> of this boy's pride and his daddy's grand achievement. <laughs> with the exception of mine, spirits were lifted all around. <laughs> Example C is um, do what you need to do with as much courage as you can, muster turning toward the great challenge and not away from it, as in many cases this will serve you better in the long run. I grew up rather sheltered from the harder sides of life, or so was the attempt. With kindly intention, we were held back from funerals and gravely ill relatives to protect us from the sad and the scary. As you well know, the cost of this strategy can be deep and long-lasting. Ben had a different approach. When his best friend, Tony, was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive form of cancer at age 11, um, Ben was at his side much of the time during treatment. Um, and the day came when we learned uh, that treatments weren't working. Tony wasn't going to live much longer. I broke that news to him on a car ride, and his reaction was immediate. He said, I have to go see him. And so he did, nearly daily, 
and he saw him all the way through to the end. His attitude about life and death is quite healthy relative to mine because of this profound experience. And yes, as parents, we must have helped set him up for this approach. But trust me when I say that he deserves full credit for some of the very tough choices he made. And this is a lesson I will need to revisit throughout my lifetime. Example D, seize and celebrate happiness wherever you can find it or make it for yourself. Ben learned to ride a two-wheeled bicycle in the parking lot in Durham, New Hampshire when he was six years old. It was a magical thing to witness as he struggled and then got it, circling round and round with a grin nearly as wide as his handlebars. In the midst of his magic first ride, he said four words that I will always remember the sound of. It's a free life. <laughs> the echo of this today reminds me that we have choice, choice to be free, to express and create. We're free to choose to be happy in tiny spaces and moments in the midst of these often heavy lives of ours. I would love to go on with, the, with Ben lessons. They still continue. But this is one of my song stories. And by definition, it must end with the narrative's companion song. Uh, my tiny teacher, Ben, inspired this one nearly 30 years ago. And I've dusted it off for, for today. Benjamin Alden is busy today. He's got a newspaper in his hands. Tearing a front page disturbance away. Now he's eating the classified ads. Too easy to pass too quickly. And teaches me to take it slow Out of the mouths of babes, you know Benjamin Allen is sleeping away Through the middle of a lonely night Softly I kiss him, don't wake him, I say But I'm hoping that I just might And he spaces in me left empty He's filling up as he grows Out of the mouths of babes, you know Benjamin Allen La -da -da -da, Benjamin Allen Benjamin Allen is smiling away He's got a secret in his tiny hand A cheerio he misplaced yesterday A diamond to this tiny man And just when I'd cease to believe in magic He's putting on quite a show the mouths of babes, you know. Benjamin Allen is talking away with words I'd never heard before. Though I'm not sure I caught everything that he said, I could not agree with him more. He says the answers that you've been seeking are ones you already know out of the mouths of babes. Benjamin Allen La -da -da -da, Benjamin Allen oh, Benjamin Allen La -da -da -da, Benjamin Allen Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thanks, Craig. What's that phrase? It's a free life? Was that what he said? It's a free life. It's a free life. <laughs> Wee! That's, yeah, and then take a dive in the lake. Mm -hmm. We have Carol Clapp next. Carol lives with her husband, David, for half the year in her hometown of Epping, New Hampshire, and for the other half, she lives in Riverton, New Zealand. How cool is that? I've been there. Carol is the oldest of eight children who grew up on a dairy farm in Epping, back when corn and cows were more plentiful than people. Over the years, residential development has put heavy pressures on agricultural real estate and brought unwelcome changes to the lifestyle Carol knew. She wrote a memoir about this and about her 50s childhood titled, Till the Cows Come Home. Carol is happy to report that she's sold or otherwise gotten rid of 500 copies already. It's a good read. You should buy one when you have more published. Uh, <laughs> how great is that? 
She'll now treat us to a story from her memoir, which is about her reluctance to leave the farm for the first grade. It's titled, They Won't Have Me. <laughs> Carol? Thank you, Pat, who has to be the bravest woman I know. <laughs> She's always been a show-off. Yeah, I, I am. Okay. <laughs> she got me into this. I, I've never done this before. Uh, but what I'm about to tell you explains why all seven of my younger brothers and sisters went to kindergarten, and I didn't. So when mom dragged me downtown to start first grade, I didn't have a clue my babysitter, Janice, had warned me about the mean women who ran the place, Mrs. Quimby, Miss Odeon, and the biggest battle axe of all, Mrs. Beecher, the first grade teacher. Janice told me that they had warts on their noses and yelled at kids all the time. My fingers burned and turned white at the knuckles as they gripped our Ford's steering wheel. When my mother pulled my leg straight out, trying to yank me out of the passenger's door, I felt like I was being sucked through a porthole on Flash Gordon's spaceship. I hung on tighter and tighter, screaming, No! 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 Mom coaxed and cajoled, tried to make me stop crying, begged me to behave, assured me that I had to go to school. She said a bell had already rung. Other mothers were standing by as my new red and green plaid dress slid up around my waist and showed my fresh yellow Sears Roebuck catalog underpants. But I didn't care. They wouldn't have me. They would not. She'll be all right, Mom assured them, hoping so, because she'd never seen me act this way before. She's only five, she said, as an excuse. Born in October, so she's probably starting a year earlier than she should. Sounded good to me. I'm too young for this crap. I'll deal with it next year. Suddenly, Mom was gone. I flopped back across the front seat and continued to cry, over my woeful situation. Maybe mom would tell them, sorry, she's not ready. We'd better take the extra year. I didn't know, but this was the worst day of my pathetic little life, and I just wanted to go home. People walked past the car on both sides. Several looked in at me. Another bell rang. I just laid there. Suddenly, there was Janice, my babysitter. She stuck her head in through the window. You'd better get in there, she hissed. They've gone to get the principal, Miss Odeon. She's really mean and hits kids with a ruler with a metal edge on it. If you don't do what she says, you're done for. I sat up crying hard again and watched my babysitter run across Main Street toward the high school. Now what? Should I start running too while I still had a chance? I could hide somewhere, in the cemetery, right there across the street. But here they came, Mom and an ugly tall woman who had to be Miss Odeon. I couldn't look at her. You need to go, you need to come into school right now, the woman said firmly. You have to, Mom said. I'll stay with you. Bring your lunchbox. Defeated, I took Mom's hand and entered the brick building. It was like walking into a meat locker, instantly cold and dark and smelled funny, like pee. I could feel the stink getting on me. <laughs> Miss Odeon pointed to my name, Carol, over a coat hook in a long, narrow closet behind the grade one, one classroom. Put your lunchbox on the floor there under the hook, she said. I tried to stop crying, but continued gasping as Mom kept her hand on my shoulder and guided me into the sunny room where Mrs. Beecher 
and my future classmates for the next 12 years all turned to look at me. A girl sat sobbing with her arms and head on a desk. The fat teacher said, This must be our missing Carol. She came forward and told me, Please have a seat. Mom nudged me toward the one remaining empty desk and baby chair. She knelt and whispered in my ear, You'll be okay. Try to have fun. I'll stand back there in the hall. You can see me through the window. I tried to settle down and finally stopped crying sooner than the other sad girl, Linda Freeman, who carried on for another two days. It really helped to have my mother standing outside the door. I must have turned to look at her 20 times just to make sure she was still there. And then, who knows how long it takes a mother to decide to duck out. She was gone. No mummy in the window. <laughs> so I just put my head down on the desk like Linda and cried. <laughs> Before long, I slid my chair back to rest my forehead on the edge of the desk so I could breathe better. Gazing down at my new shoes, I suffered another spasm of grief. There were my T-strap Mary Janes, the color of ox blood. At least that's what it said on the can of kiwi polish we bought to keep them nice. The left shoe was dark maroon and dull with disturbing green stitching across the strap and along the sides, while the stitching on the right shoe was bright white, and the shoe was cherry red the way it should be. The previous Saturday, Mom had taken me to Exeter, school shopping. We'd bought a pencil case with a sharpener hooked to a zipper, a Roy Rogers and Dale Evans lunchbox, a package of nice socks, in five different colors, one for each day of the week. And then at Moody's Shoe Store, we settled on a pair of Oxblood Mary Janes. The clerk assured, measured my feet, commenting on their toughness and width. He guessed I went barefoot a lot, which was true. I always went barefoot on the farm. These shoes felt clunky, stiff and heavy. Mom suggested that I try to break them in by wearing my Mary Janes for a couple hours each day. She said I'd get blisters, but maybe they wouldn't burst if I broke them in easy enough. So during the week before school, I marched and dashed around the farmyard, taming the shoes as they chafed my heels and little toes. I was in this state of preparedness when my younger sister Susie came running. Matthew's in the manure, she yelled. He fell into the manure. <laughs> so I kicked my shoes into gear and ran after her toward the barn to save our baby brother Matthew. It was obvious what had happened. There were two deep tractor, tra tractor tire ruts where the men had been backing a spreader under the barn to haul manure out to the fields. Because the manure and cow pee had become soupy, the men had dumped a load of sand to absorb the liquid, creating instead a fragile crust over a treacherous toddler trap. <laughs> and there was little Matthew rolling over and over in one of the deep soupy ruts of green slurry, like a donut in the friolator. <laughs> Not so much a crawler as a green St. Patrick's Day crawler. <laughs> he wasn't crying, but he held his breath and closed his eyes as his dung-laden diaper took him down for the third time. <laughs> Get him out, cried Susie. I looked at the sand pile that had toppled him into the rut, looked down at my bare legs, my new shoes, pretty pink socks. Mostly it was the shoes that made me hesitate, but there was no time to get out of them. I just had to do it. I sucked in a deep breath, then deliberately stepped one foot 
into the cold green soup that immediately rose up to my knee. I muckled onto Matthew with both hands. Not sure what I was grabbing, I wanted to make it quick. So I just chucked him onto the sand at Susie's feet and stood there, filthy. One leg in, one leg out, as we watched Matthew. Finally, he heaved out a wail to rival the siren, the fire siren downtown. Soon, Matthew and I shared a warm bathtub full of soapy manure water. Back in the grade one classroom, how I missed my baby brother. As I kept my head down on the desk that first day of school, I ached with an ox blood yearning for the farm. I whimpered and gasped. I missed Judy, my Jersey cow, Greta, my calf, my cat, Softpaw, and Tippy the dog. I wanted to go home. I wanted my mother. At some point during my first grade ordeal, I did manage to get with the program, somewhat. But that whole year, my green-stained shoe was a constant reminder that life on the farm never looked better than when I was torn from it to start school. <laughs> And uh, Carol and I happen to know that we have that baby Matthew as a special guest. He's a little bigger now. <laughs> right over there. She saved him and he survived. <laughs> now we are going to have John Lovering, the talented, innovative, and dependable producer of this very radio program. Come on to tell us a story. He's lived in the seacoast of New Hampshire with his wife, Melanie, for over half a century. I believe that means you're both over 50, right, John? Yes, definitely <laughs> way over 50. John is proud to have dedicated 35 years to the teaching profession as an earth science, biology, and media produ production teacher. Since retiring in 2004, he has volunteered at Portsmouth Community Radio as a member of the engineering committee, the host of Audio Theater, and the producer of True Tales Radio. Tonight, John will tell us a story from his teaching days titled, New Shoes and a Blindfold. Yes, thank you. I, I had one about a Tesla coil, but I put that aside. Anyway. It was the fall of 1995-96, and at the time I was teaching at a middle school earth science course at Triton Regional School in Byfield, Massachusetts. Now, this is a school that's located very close to the Parker River, and if you're not familiar with it, that's a tidal river in a marsh that's connected to Plum Island Sound, which is right behind Plum Island, where the National Wildlife Refuge is. Now, our class was doing an interdisciplinary unit with reading, uh, math, social studies, uh, and uh, the... English classes, and over a period of several weeks, the students were going to work in teams of 20 students to accomplish some goals that each of the subject area teachers had put together for this extended project. As the students needed to work in teams, and it was the fall, they didn't know each, each other too well, so we decided to do a few team-building activities. Now, one of these activities was called a trust walk, and it is, as you can imagine, it is just that. You go on an obstacle course, holding hands with team members, and you snake through the course blindfolded. Now, the only people who are not blindfolded are the five or six students who are assigned the role of guides. Now, here's the scenario. This is what we presented to the kids. You are students on a climb in the Himalayan mountains, and you have six Sherpas who are guiding you. They cannot speak English. As you proceed up the mountain, a.k.a. the obstacle course, consisting of trees, ditches, rocks, ropes, logs that you're going to have to go around, under, over to get to the mountaintop. A blinding snowstorm comes up and you cannot see where you are going. However, the Sherpas are very familiar with the trail and they will guide you up to the mountain, the obstacle course, but it's against their religion to touch you, so they can only speak to you 
to help you find your way in this snowstorm. But remember, they cannot speak English. So you're going to have to figure out what words they are using that mean stop, go, turn right, turn left, back up, you know, words of direction. Oh yes, and you will be blindfolded to simulate the blinding snowstorm. And the Sherpas have to make up their own language. You will also need to hold the hand of the person in front and behind you and move in a chain snaking your way through the obstacle course. If you help your other team members by once you figuring out some of the, if you figure out some of the commands and you say, I know that Wumpa means stop, let everybody else know. Help everybody else out. So you're all going to help each other. The teachers had built an obstacle course that uh, was on a peninsula that jutted out off the football field into the marsh. And on one side of that peninsula was the Parker River. It was about 25 to 30 feet wide and at high tide was about 10 to 12 feet deep, and at low tide, about 1 to 2 feet deep. Okay, with that background, here's the class, here's the story, is what happened. We headed out to the peninsula. The six students who were Sherpas had developed their language. They'd spent a couple of days doing this, and they made up a nonsense words that they had. And the rest of the students, about 15 of them, were all carrying blindfolds, and we walked out to the peninsula, which was about a five-minute walk from the school. On the way out, a young man by the name of Matt came up to me, and he said, uh, Mr. Lovering, I, I have a question. You see these new Nike sneakers? And I looked down at them, and I said, yes. He said, I just got these for school, and they cost a lot of money. I'm not going to get them dirty, am I? Matt, you may get a few grass stains or, or maybe some dust on them and a little mud in the tread or something, but that's not anything that's a problem. They can be brushed off or easily washed off. We've done this many times, and no one has ever complained about their shoes getting too dirty. Well, okay, if you're sure, I really don't want anything to happen to these shoes. My mother will kill me if I get them dirty. Don't worry, Matt. You will be fine. All right, I hope so, because I'm going to be in a lot of trouble if I get them messed up, you know? I know, Matt. Relax. The climbers tied on their blindfolds, and we checked. Excuse me, we checked them to make sure they were tight so that they could not see. They all held hands in a human chain. The only people not holding hands, of course, were the people on the ends. Uh, these two people, one on each end of the chain, held their free hand out in front of them, sort of like a police officer saying, stop. So they were kind of like out there, those of you at home, that's the best way I could describe it. The Sherpas were told that they must stay in a particular position on the path. Don't move. You call out your commands from that position. Everybody had an assigned position. That was important. Oh, yes, I forgot to mention, Matt was the first one in line with his hand out straight in his new shiny Nike sneakers. He was the leader of the climbers, and there he stood blindfolded. And I couldn't help but smile at how he was so worried about this, and it was going great. Now, the Sherpas were calling out words like, Lumba, Lumba, Weibo, Weibo, Zappa, Flabba, Schmach, Schmach. And words like that, and our climbers were trying to figure out what they meant, and every once in a while somebody banged into a pine tree and said, Lumba means back up. And so they'd, you know, Lumba, Lumba, Schmach, go right, I just ran into a bush, you know, and all this kind of stuff was going on. And they were having a good time, and they were working their way through. But about 15 minutes into the obstacle course, there was a section of the path that came out of a wooded area, and fairly close to the bank of the Parker River, but still on a path, and one of our Sherpas had been assigned to stay there. And as they came, as the first person came out, Matt, walking through the, with his blindfold on, with all the rest of the kids holding on to their hands, you could, in this one case, touch that person, grab their hand to direct them to the right. That was a safety thing. Okay, so do that. No problem. Yours truly was in the back of the chain of the students, so I could see the front of the chain where Matt in his new shoes led the chain. But there was a problem. You see, when Matt came out of the wooded area and onto the path where he needed to be turned by a Sherpa, there was no Sherpa there. Seems she had gone over to talk with one of her friends about 50 feet away, leaving that spot, that very critical spot, vacant of anybody to stop the students and direct them. Uh, as soon as I saw what was happening, I yelled, stop, stop, and I didn't use schlurper, schlurper, mop, mop. I said, stop, stop, not in Sherpa language, stop, Matt. He took too many steps, and he disappeared over the banking. <laughs> I heard him scream as his new Nikes hit the muddy muck of the marsh, 
and down he went, sliding on his back, feet first into the low tide water of the Paca River. All the kids were ripping off their blindfolds and running toward the riverbank, as was I. I went down the bank where Matt was just sitting up, coming up out from underneath the two feet of water, still wearing the blindfolds, soaked and covered with mud, silt, and that proverbial muck from a, from a swamp-like environment. You see, Matt had gone underwater on his back, new shoes leading the way, making a great splash as they hit the water. I grabbed him underneath his arms and I lifted him up. And there we both stood, knee-deep in the Parker River, with all the kids on the bank above us laughing and they were bent over, screaming and yelling. Matt pulled his blindfold off and he screamed, My shoes! My shoes! My mother's going to kill me! Oh no, look at my shoes! Now, as I helped this very slippery, muck-covered, and now rather odiferous young man <laughs> up the bank uh, of the mighty Parker, I noticed that the mud was sort of bubbling out of the new shoes and, and the squish-squish sound as the muck oozed out through the once bright and shiny nylon fabric of the Nikes. They, they were, there was a particularly lot of muck uh, coming out of the tongue of the shoe, and the word Nike was obliterated, and, and I hoped his mother was not going to kill him. I got Matt back to the school. He left quite a trail down the hallway, something the custodian was not too pleased about. And then I got Matt into the nurse's office, something she was not too pleased about. And while he was trying to dry her off, dry him off, I called his mother and I told her what had happened. And because Matt's house was quite close to the very marsh in the Parker River in question, she said something like, oh, don't worry about it. He's always getting dirty in the mash. I'll toss him in the washer and he'll be fine. Now, I hope she meant the shoes and not Matt. <laughs> but I must tell you that I have stayed in touch with Matt all these years. He later became one of my media production students as a senior in high school. He's a brilliantly creative man in his 30s now. And though many years ago he told me that when he had one of those dreams, you know the kind you have when you dream you're falling and all of a sudden you wake up? Well, every time he dreams he's falling, he's going down a riverbank under the water with a blindfold on, which to me sounds very frightening. But to him, none of that mattered because in his dream, he gets to take his shoes off before he goes down. <laughs> That's my story. Uh, I will add, thank you, I will add one thing. There isn't too many days when I think of this story that I, I think about how fortunate uh, we all were. That could have been a disaster. If that water had been 10 to 12 feet deep and the tide had been coming in, you know, I, I would, probably wouldn't be here, and maybe Matt wouldn't either. So we were very lucky. It turned into be something funny, but uh, I thought about that a lot. And after that, we never let a student stand there. We had a teacher there. <laughs> well, you learn, you learn lessons as you go along. Thanks. <laughs> If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio, local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci, and our MC is Pat Spaulding.